Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Well, I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries, and welcome to our Erev Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. And uh, we're glad that you joined us. Very much appreciate all who are part of our broadcast and welcome us into your home or wherever you're at each Sabbath. A couple of quick announcements. Let me remind all of the local guys that are here where we're at that we have another men's prayer breakfast this Sunday. And it'll uh, start at 9 o'clock here at the studios for Lion of Lamb Ministries. And we certainly would like to welcome all the men in the area to come and pray with us for the needs of the community and the congregation. Uh, also, I want to share with you that uh, high holidays are coming up here this month. Uh, trumpets, atonement, and then in October, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we'll be broadcasting special uh, services for that. Yom Teruah. Rosh Hashanah will be Thursday evening, September 21st at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. And also we'll broadcast the Kol Nidre, the All Vows service for Yom Kippur on Saturday, September 30th at 7.30 p.m. Of course, we're going to be out at um, Chandler uh, where we hold the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll be out there camping uh, but we will be able to get a teaching in during that Sabbath that will happen in there. You'll still have a broadcast teaching uh, that goes with Tabernacles at that time as well. We're also sponsoring here in this area a Hanukkah conference. It'll be hosted by the Hebraic Family Fellowship. That's the local congregation here in Norman and Moore. December 15th through the 17th, Lionel Lane Ministries will have the responsibility for it. Registration is open. And it's available online. Just go to Lion of Lamb and you'll see about the Hanukkah conference that we have coming up. Our Feast of Tabernacles registration is still open, but at this point it includes a $50 late fee. So there are slots for you to still come in and be a part of it, but we've already had to start ordering food and other kinds of services. And that's the reason for the additional late charge, because we have to make adjustments um, on it. Make plans now to enjoy us for nine days of rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, out there, if you can't come for the whole thing, then come for that first weekend, the weekend conference, that you can join us for it. And for those of you who have already registered, please check your email for a statement from coming from events at net. And the confirmation packet. We use email to communicate because it's faster, less expensive to us than mailing by the post. Please look for this important email that was sent, uh, that is sent this week. Uh, you need that material to be able to make it into the camp and to be a part of things. So look for in your email inbox from events at net the confirmation packet for you to be a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, I think that pretty much covers our announcements. Again, welcome to the service, and, uh, and we're ready for Kiddush. Welcome. Please join our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Adonai, 
Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kirishanu b'mitzvotav, v'tivanu lecha lepnei shel Shabbat. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Let's see the blessing over the cup. Blessing over the bread. Hamutzi lekemin haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for my wife, Father, and the blessing she is to me. Um, I thank you for the strength that I receive through her, Father, uh, from you. I just praise you for her, Father, for her beauty, Father, just for um, the goodness that she is, Father. The way that she reads your word, Father, and spends time in your word, Father, I can still learn about you, Father, and motivates me to do the same. Thank you, Father, we can be an encouragement to one another, that we can be a, a team that functions and works through life together. I think that she is um, a pillar of strength for me when I'm weak and I need to be the same thing for her, Father. I praise you, Father. You, you reveal so much of yourself um, through my wife. And I just I rejoice to know this, Father. Thank you for your continual goodness, Father. Thank you. She, she sustains our home and takes care of our child and for many more to come. Thank you, Father, again, for your faithfulness to me, Father, through my wife. Um, thank you, Father, you give me the ability to care for her as well. I praise you, Father, and I thank you for all your continual goodness to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Let's bless our sons.
Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Ba'chodesh Nohora Tehillot Oh Sefele Oh Sefele Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, v'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, v'chol me'odecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha, v'shinantam lavanecha, all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Gold. But in their folly they forgot their 
Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us here at B'nai Shalom, and we thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week here for the Torah portion. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 26, where a portion will begin for this evening. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bakarbanu Mikol Haamim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Ata Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Kitavo, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 26, starting at verse 1, where it says this, And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you. And put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to one of one who is a priest in those days and shall and shall say to him, I declare today the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us our portion Kitavo, which comes from that first phrase where it says when you come in to the land. This is interesting coming off of last week's Torah portion, uh, which was entitled Kitetse, which says when you go out, when it was talking about when you go out to war. And I described in last week's portion about how when you go out of your house, when you observe things along the road, there was a series of commandments for you to follow, to do good for your neighbor, for the stranger among you, to if you see your neighbor's ox uh, sitting on the road, that you would gather it up, you would help them. And so when you go out We have a series of commandments to show kindness toward one another, to our brother. In our portion here, now when it says when you enter in, it's talking about when you come into the land, but there's always other deeper meanings and levels that we can look into when we study the scripture. Not only is it when you enter into the promised land, when the children of Israel were to go, they were to gather up the fruits of the land, the trees, and that they were to offer a blessing and a uh, offering to the Lord of their first fruits. We can also look at this also is that when we go into the kingdom, what are we to do? How are we to worship the Lord? What are we to recognize when we enter into the kingdom? There is also another deeper way you can look at this Torah portion here and the theme of this Torah portion. When you also enter into your prayer life, into your personal relationship with the Lord, when you go into the quiet place, what are the things that you are to think about or what you are to focus on when you do that? That's kind of the theme of this entire Torah portion here. What would happen here is, what exactly is the first thing that God is asking the children of Israel to do when they go into the land? It's not necessarily about going in and bringing in the fruit, the first fruits. What it is, it's to recognize God, his blessing, his provision, and his deliverance to bring you out of where you came from and has given you this inheritance, given you this possession, and you recognize and you thank the Lord for that inheritance. There's a very elaborate procedure here that's described when somebody was to bring that first fruits offering. Let me continue reading here now at verse 4 and listen to the procedure in which someone was to bring this offering. 
Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and shall set it before the altar of the Lord your God and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian, or some scriptures say Aramean, about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great and great terror and with signs and wonders. And he brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God is giving to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is with you. Let me continue on. Verse 12. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, in the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite and to the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say to the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house. And also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all of your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, or given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. There is this elaborate procedure for when this offering was brought, the person bringing the offering was to say these words was to pray these words. It's interesting because there's many other commandments in Scripture that says you're to do this, you're to do that. But this procedure right here asks for the person to actually pray in the process of giving their offering. He retells the story of the ancestors where it says my father was a wandering Syrian or Aramean. Some people think that, has to, that goes back to Abraham where he came from that area, the land of, of Syria, modern day Syria, and that then he came and entered into the land. But then it also talks about how it went down into, uh, went down into Egypt. And Abraham did that as well, but then also some people think this had to do with hearkening back to the story of Jacob, that he also too went up into Syria when he went to dwell with Laban. He was about to perish because Esau was, was chasing after him or sought his life, and he too went down into Egypt with the 70 in number and his family that went down there. We're recounting the actual story of the ancestors in the process, telling the whole story of coming out of Egypt. Coming into the land, then talking about the first fruits that God has given to them as an inheritance after entering into the land. This whole recounting the story gives us the basis for teaching our children the Haggadah, the Passover Haggadah, recounting these stories. But it's interesting with this offering that it's actually commanded, this is what you are to pray when giving this offering. Now, in the times of the temple, this was an amazing uh, procedure. Our brother Rico has uh, described before that this was the, the way this was brought up during the time of the temple period. 
There would be a flute player that would announce the coming of the offering. And this would be a great and joyous occasion when somebody would bring the first fruits offering. This would take place between the Feast of Shavuot and Tabernacles. And there would be people that would be bringing the first fruit of their, of their orchards, of their fields, on a regular basis. Bringing baskets and bringing them to the priests. And that this was a great and amazing offering that was given. Great uh, rejoicing took place here. And that they were asked to then pray this prayer, and there's even more elaborate procedures at the time of the temple. This is, this is one of those joyous offerings that was given, but the key of it all being recognizing the blessings that God has given to you and provided to you. Because if you remember the children of Israel, they, when they went into the land, they didn't plant those vineyards. They didn't plant those orchards. They went and they possessed a land and they dispossessed the people who owned that land when they entered into the promised land. Because what we're talking about here is leading into what Joshua will do as he leads the children of Israel into the land of Canaan and that you are to always recognize and focus on the Lord who provided those things for you. They were to bring the first fruits, the first fruits of the orchard, first fruits of the offering. That was to be the very best. The very best goes to God first. Now, that very best, you one could turn and look and say, that's the most money. If I'm to sell uh, my crop, then some of that very first offering would be the first time I would ever gain any money or any uh, return on my investment for a, for a field. But the Lord says, no, the first fruits belong to him. This goes back to a, a continuing theme where it says the Lord that the firstborn of every womb was to be redeemed because that also belonged to the Lord. The Lord wants the very best out of us. When we go and we turn to the Lord, we pray before the Lord, we thank the Lord, and we give an offering to the Lord. It has to be the very best. We have to give that offering. Now, many people have taken the whole concept of tithing and offering to the modern day where none of, we don't live in an agricultural society where we don't always give the first fruits of our field because many of us work in uh, corporate jobs or sit in front of a computer and we don't work a field and, and till agriculture uh, as uh, our income, basically. So many people have turned and looked to, well, the, the first of my labors, the first work that I've done, I turn that over to the Lord and talking about the concept of tithing and giving one-tenth. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate where some people say, well, that tithe only had to do with agriculture and I'm not, I don't have to give money to the Lord or to uh, my church or give those offerings there. I'm not going to get into that debate. I do believe that it's right to do good by the Levite when it says that the offering was given or the tithe was given. given. You're to look for for the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and you're to give that to them so that they can eat and be filled and they can be um, the Levites who weren't given an inheritance of land that they were then able to um, continue to live and grow and have some sort of income, some sort of means to live. So if you take that concept to the modern day, well, then we do have pastors and ministers and who that is their job. That is what they do. They serve the Lord. They serve the people they teach and that you're to take from your tithe and give to them so that they are taken care of as well. Those that serve the Lord and those that are also in need, the widow, the fatherless, the orphan. 
So I, I do believe that there is a concept here that does tie into the modern day, but I'm not going to get into the whole details of that. Some people claim that, oh, the tithe only has to do with agriculture, so I don't have to donate to my congregation. Or other congregations go too far, and other churches, they say, give us the very first paycheck in the month of January uh, to donate your entire paycheck, that first fruits offering that's in addition to the tithe. And I think there is some manipulation going on and things that I disagree with where a church will look for new ways or a certain denomination might look for new ways to gain more money into the congregation that I believe that there is a level of inappropriateness there. So I wouldn't, we should never look to the scripture and use the scripture to gain something of our own benefit. Because if you remember, again, everything that we have, all the blessings that we have, they come from the Lord. It's not because we did it ourselves. It's not because we earned it or deserve it or that we have any righteousness to stand for ourselves. The children of Israel will go into this land and they're going to possess all of these things that, that it's by the grace of God that they were brought out of Egypt and even got to that place. Our focus should always be on the Lord and we should always make sure that we're doing giving our best to our faith into what the Lord is what he's done for us and to our spiritual life amen our uh, chapter 26 continues on here uh, at verse 16 and now talks about a certain phrase here that I always love always love reading this when it's a great encouragement of the Lord tell, speaking of how he really looks upon his people this day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all of your heart with all of your soul today you have proclaimed to the Lord your God that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments that you will obey his voice also today the lord has proclaimed you to be his special people just as he promised you that you should keep all of his commandments and that he shall set you high above the nations which he has made in praise in name and in honor that you may be a holy people to the lord your god just as he has spoken that phrase there, his special people, or sometimes in other translations it says a peculiar treasure. The Hebrew there uh, is the word uh, segulah, which uh, it was made up of four Hebrew letters, a samech, a gimel, a lamed, and a hey. All of those letters and the meanings of those, a samech sometimes means a support or to lift up. Uh, a, a gimel means a camel or also to lift up and exalt. The lamed means a shepherd that also raises a staff and leads the people and the hay means a behold to behold something and so it's almost as if um, the shepherd and what he lifts up and, and raises up above something else is the theme of all of the meanings of those Hebrew letters which ties directly to this phrase a special people a peculiar treasure that God looks at his people in this way that word only appears several times in the Torah uh, it appears in Exodus chapter 19 which is the chapter immediately preceding the Ten Commandments. It's almost God, when he says this, and it also in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's, it says this as well. And in both of those chapters, it's talking about the covenant that God makes with men and also covenants that men make with other people. In Deuteronomy 7, it was warning us about not making a covenant with the people of the land. And he says, because you are a peculiar treasure, a special people to God. 
And now in Exodus 19, that precedes the Ten Commandments. This is covenant language is what this is. This is God when he's speaking. It's almost as if this phrase, when he calls us his special people or a peculiar treasure, that this is his vow to Israel and to his people of how he looks at them and raises them up. And then what follows is going to be something associated with covenant with the covenant that God has made with Israel. We look at the Ten Commandments and we look at the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And that when God spoke, he was establishing a covenant with his people, a wedding marriage covenant with vows, with signs, with all of these things that tie together into what makes a covenant. There's various aspects of every covenant that's formed that tie into and increase the strength of the covenant. Sometimes what's done is there's a sign or something is set up as a symbol of that covenant. Sometimes a tree is planted as a sign of a covenant or a stone or a pillar is lifted it up as a sign of the covenant. If you look back at the covenant made with Laban and Jacob, they did it at Gilead and they set up stones and they ate a meal and there was a covenant meal that was had uh, that was associated with the establishment of a covenant. Sometimes there's a scar or a sign that is made or exchanged. In a wedding, we have rings that we wear as a sign of the covenant. And each of these things all build up and form what is a covenant between two men or between man and God. There are always terms of a covenant. There's a reading of a contract or a um, ketubah in a marriage covenant. And there are different varying levels of that. One, if you simply make a business contract with one another, that is a type of covenant that you have terms to that relationship and that agreement. So what's going to follow here in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy is exactly that. It is terms of a covenant that is going to be made, that's going to be established with the children of Israel. What they are called to do is this, is that they are to go, when they go into the land, when they cross over the Jordan, they're to go to two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they were to go to these two mountains, and they are to take stones, they're to whitewash them or plaster them, and to write all the words of the law onto these stones. And they were to be placed on Mount Ebal. This again all ties to the establishment of a covenant. You're to write down the terms of the agreement, and you're to set up pillars or stones as a sign of that covenant. Starting here in chapter 27, it also talks about how uh, saying uh, to the elders of Israel, you are to keep all the commandments that I'm commanding you today. Um, the better translation here in our scriptures, some people might look at this and, and let me do a little uh, rabbit trail here for just a minute. Where it says that we are to keep all the commandments, all the judgments, all the teachings, and we're to keep those things. Many people might look at that and say, how can I keep all of the commandments? How can, I, how can I do all of that if there's 613 or more or whatever the number is of commandments? How do I keep all of the commandments? Well, in a, a better translation in the Hebrew, in, it, when you read this, is to, it's better to say you're to keep each of the commandments. And the reason why is this, is that when you do say, I'm going to keep all the commandments, well, you're, then you're looking at them all as a whole, and that becomes so daunting in our own minds that we question whether we can do that or accomplish that. And so some people quit before they even, before they even try because it's so overwhelming. But if you're to look at the commandments in a way to keep each of the commandments, well, then that, what you do is you grow and you learn and you look at each commandment 
in its single entirety. Look at one commandment at a time. That's one of the ways that you can focus on and you can truly keep and observe the commandments of the Lord and do the commandments of the Lord one commandment at a time. Now, we are to look over all these things. That's why we study Torah. That's why we study Scripture. And so we do desire to keep everything and to be obedient to the Lord our God who has given us all of these commandments. But for us to look, and one of the encouraging ways is to take it one commandment at a time and instead of looking at all of the commandments, look at each of the commandments. Each in its own day, each in its own time, each in its own teaching or Torah portion. And that that is something that can help us and stay encouraged when ke- with keeping all of the commandments. Now, back to our story here where the children of Israel went to Mount Ebal and went to Mount Gerizim. And they were separated, all the tribes of Israel were separated onto each of these mountains. Now, this, when this actually took place, this is described in Joshua chapter 8, uh, when the children of Israel actually did these things. But the commandment and the instruction of what they were to do is given for us here in this Torah portion. So what it is, is they went to these mountains and they separated the tribes of Israel. Now, this is interesting here, and this is a, interesting for future study notes or, or why this was set up this way. They were to, half the tribes were to stand on Mount Gerizim. This was to be the mountain that was to be pronounced blessing upon Mount Gerizim. And so what we are to do, time out. All right, had a little technical glitch there. All right. Now, where I was in our, uh, in our instruction was uh, that I was describing now Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. On Mount Gerizim was the mountain that was to be pronounced blessings, and on Mount Ebal was to be pronounced curses. Now, it's interesting, you can go to the land of Israel today, and you can visit these mountains, and you can see that Mount Gerizim is more lush and plentiful in its, uh, in its agriculture and in its blessing, and Mount Ebal looks apparently more bald, more bear. And so it's interesting that even today there is a something that you can observe where you can see the difference in these blessings between these two mountains. Now, the children of Israel were separated in this way. On Mount Gerizim, uh, on the tribes that were placed on that mountain was Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And on Mount Ebal, it's uh, the one that was cursed. It says Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Now, there's certainly a lot of deeper study that can go on to into why these tribes were selected to be on each mountain. It's interesting also that Joseph is listed in this list, not the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh that were given as all the tribes of Israel when they traveled in the wilderness. They were separated. There was Ephraim. There was Manasseh. Levi was also mixed amongst the uh, amongst the children of Israel and amongst the blessing. However, they're distinguished here. So this is specifically listing the very sons of Jacob that are in this listing. You can go into deeper study and wonder, okay, why was Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali on the mountain that was cursed, if you will? One can speculate. Reuben, there was a series of things in Scripture that describe how Reuben defiled the bed of the couch of his father, um, that there was a curse that was put upon him. Dan, in future prophecy, will have, will, uh, be the leader of the northern kingdom that will bring a great deal of idolatry back into, uh, Israel and into the northern kingdom. 
And so there's people could speculate and study why were these sons on the mountain that was cursed versus the one on the mountain that was blessed, where you then have Levi and Judah and Joseph and Benjamin were on the mountain of Gerizim that were blessed. So one could go into deeper studies into future history and see if this curse and this blessing upon the half of the uh, sons of Jacob, if you will, what, what effect that might have had into future prophecy and future history. So, what was now going to be pronounced here is that the Levites were to speak with a very loud voice, and then they were to say these words, and then the people were to answer. And this is the listing of the curses that were put upon Mount Ebal. And I'm going to read these in their entirety, because what it is, is there's a great deal of power here when you read these curses, the terms of this covenant, if you will, and that then the people each responded with, Amen. The Hebrew word Amen, which basically, which comes from the word Imunah, uh, it's kind of the root of the word Imunah, which means faith, and it truly means, so let it be done. That whenever you say the word Amen, you are affirming that the words that were said, you are saying and almost vowing, if you will, them to come into existence when you say the word amen. So now let me read here, uh, starting at verse 15 of chapter 27. Cursed is the one who makes a carved and molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father and his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes, a blind, makes the blind to wander off the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. And finally, chapter two, verse 26, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Every single one of these curses have to do, they do have a theme, that all of these things and these sins would be something that is done in secret. It'd be something that we would be kept away, hidden from uh, any other, from the public, from any other eyes that would see. But God, however, has a way. He can see all things. And these curses are pronounced upon people. Anyone who might commit any of these things in secret, you, one might think that they've gotten away with it. But the Lord sees, and He has said here in His Scripture, in His Word, that cursed is the one who does these things. Even if they're in secret, even if you don't know, no one else knows, the Lord knows and that curses will fall upon each and every one of the pe people who do these things. Many of these things are no-brainers, if you will. To do justice to the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. We've, this has been a theme throughout all of Scripture um, that I've said before. The reason why Sodom and Gomorrah was judged is because of injustice to an orphan and to a, the fatherless, to the widow. 
That it's that God looks at these things very seriously. To cause somebody who's blind to wander off the road is just the most despicable thing one could do for somebody who's in need, who can't follow, who can't see with their own eyes. But it would be done in secret because no one else would see it, and that you would cause somebody to wonder or to stumble. That is a cursed thing and an abomination to the Lord. Many people look at these things. They might say, oh, no problem, no problem. I, I, I didn't set up a carved image. Um, I didn't have any improper fornication with certain mem- members of my family or anything like that. I, don't, I do good to the stranger. I do all those things. Many people might look and they say, I am not cursed in all of these things. I'm, I'm okay. Until you get to that very last one in verse 26 where it says, Do not confirm any all the words of this law by observing them. Or a better word there would be by doing them. One might say, oh, I observe the commandments of the Lord. I acknowledge the commandments of the Lord. But one of the things that I would always encourage people to do when you see that, that it's like, it's not about observing them necessarily, but it's about those that does the work, who actually does the commandments to fulfills fulfills those commandments. It's one thing to just observe them, acknowledge them, and, 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 and pass by. One could say they're observant of Torah, and that's because they read it. But then they're not actually ones that do the work, who do the law. And it's in the um, New Testament, in the book of James, which I always encourage people to reread over and over again, is talking about being a doer of the law is what is key here. So one of us, one of the things we look at this here, and we we're to say amen in every single one of these things. There's also kind of an interesting little side note I want to bring out here. Whenever we pray, whenever we pray before the Lord in our own personal prayer life, when we go in to our prayer closet or to our time in which we look and focus on the Lord, we say these words, we ask the petitions of God, and we always end with amen. And we sometimes don't remember what that means that I described to you earlier, that it means so let it be done. So let it come into existence when we say this word, Amen. This Hebrew word only appears in Torah a few times. In fact, uh, the listing here is the o- one of the only times in which is the one of only two passages where the word appears. The only other time where the word Amen appears in Torah has to do with the judgment of the or the law of jealousy when a woman is brought in and is accused of being unfaithful to her husband and in the process of the bitter waters she's to read all of these things and then she is to say you will receive this judgment if you don't if you have been unfaithful this is the judgment you shall receive and then she is to say amen so let it be done so that means the only time in script in torah that the word amen is used is always in affirming in affirming judgment upon transgression or curses upon someone who has transgressed the law it's to always cause us i would caution people and i would recommend to people that you be careful what you ask for of the lord and that when we say the word amen and when we pray and when we go in to pray before the lord that we don't do those things lightly that we don't do those things in a cavalier way that we focus on what we're doing here and that we are affirming it's a way of affirming the covenant god has made with us when we pray when we go in before the lord when we when we pray to him and we ask things of him that be careful what you say amen to because in the torah but in in with a biblical example this word was reserved for somebody standing before and ready to receive judgment and curses if they have been unfaithful 
So if you go into your prayer life and you have been, you are unclean in some way, or you've been unfaithful to the Lord and to his commandments in some way, I would caution you to be careful of what you say amen to. I described early, earlier in this passage, in this Torah portion, that there was a prescribed prayer that you're to go in when you brought that, those first fruits. It didn't say that you're to say the word amen at the end of that. Again, that word was reserved for something that was very important and very specific. Now, if we are talking about prayer, I do want to always point us to Yeshua the Messiah in what he said about prayer. And always good to have a quick reminder of the, these things. And I always want to focus on that this any time that I get an opportunity to. In Matthew chapter 6, at the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua said, There is a way to pray before the Lord. It's to be done in humility. It's to be done in a way to where you're not to look like you're praying. It's not to be a vain repetition that is for all to see that when you go into the Lord when you go into the place before the Father where it's just you and Him there is a very specific way to pray it's done in humility it's done in reverence to the Lord our God always love hearing this our Father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us in, uh, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That is done in with a humility and a reverence to make sure that you are asking for your daily bread, not anything more, not anything more than greater provisions, and to those that there is a level of forgiveness to forgive those who've wronged you, asking in humility for forgiveness for you, for the people you have wronged. So there is a proper way to pray, and always remember that it's done in humility, reverence, and in blessing. Our Torah portion continues through chapter 28, and a little bit into chapter 29. And what we have here in chapter 28, again, is more of the specific blessings for keeping the covenant, and curses for not keeping the covenant. For the first 14 verses of chapter 28, we have a great deal of blessing. Wonderful things that if we keep the commandments of the Lord, if we do what the Lord has asked us to do, then we have blessings. I love reading this passage as well. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all, each, of his commandments, which I command to you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be by the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, and the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you, to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you. In your storehouses and in all which you set your hand and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself just as he swore has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground. 
in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, and to give you the rain into your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, and shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall be above only, and not be beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are to carefully observe them, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Amen and amen. Blessed we will be if we do these things. All of these things are physical, beneficial provisions and blessings that would come upon those that keep the commandments of the Lord. 14 verses that to encourage us that if we keep the commandments, this is what we get. Now, the passage continues, though, through the rest of chapter 28, 68 verses in all, in total, that he then goes into if we don't keep the commandments of the Lord. Curses that will follow on all those things. And he goes almost word for word that all of these things that would be blessings to you if you kept them will then be cursed if you do not follow them. You'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the country, your basket, your kneading bowl, the fruits of your body, the produce of the land. All of those things will be cursed if you don't do these commandments. And then it continues on. It almost like when you read this passage and when he talks about how the Lord will bring a king over you, set a nation over you, which you've that your fathers have never known that he that an alien will rise higher than you somebody who's not of your kin you'll be hunger and thirst in nakedness you'll be destroyed all your high places your gates and your fortified walls will be destroyed and, and you'll be scattered into the nations here and it says you'll be offered for sale here toward the end and then your enemies you'll be offered as slaves but no one will buy you you look at this and you're like man moses you're kind of laying it on a little thick here as far as the curses are concerned, the blessings were good, but man, the curses sure are a lot worse than the blessings. And what's interesting here in this is there's a couple of things in, in play here. Moses was a prophet, and he knew the children of Israel were going to go in and that they were going to be disobedient. So it was one thing to say, these are the blessings that you will have, and we could, I could go on and on about the blessings, but... The problem is, is you're not going to get those blessings or it's going to be kind of few and far between. Instead, what you're going to get is you're actually going to get the curses. So I'm actually going to put maybe a little bit more detail in the things that are actually going to happen to you, which is unfortunate for the children of Israel here. You can read this passage and there are certain aspects of this. A greater study can be done that would tie all of these curses to the actual history of Israel and all the sins that they've committed and all the things that they've done over time. And in the history of Israel, you can see when their gates and their high fortified walls would be besieged. And all of those things, you could look at the history with the Romans, Masada, Siege of Jerusalem. You could tie some uh, aspects of history to some of these curses, even to the point where it says the Lord will scatter you from among the peoples and to the ends of the earth where you'll serve other gods, which is where you can look and you can say this is where we are today, where Israel has been scattered into the nations. And we are still suffering from the judgment of not keeping and observing and doing the commandments of the Lord that he commanded us. When we went into the land, what did everybody do that first fruits offering? Probably not. 
did we keep the sabbatical year? No. We knew the history of Israel was that they didn't keep the jubilee years or the, or the sabbatical years. They didn't do that well. Um, and that they asked for kings to rise up over them and instead of the judges that were established in, uh, in Israel. And then future times when uh, uh, foreign nations would come and take over the land and scatter, in, whether it's the Babylonians or whether it's the Romans. All of these things have taken place to where we are here today. Where we almost, we are yearning and longing for the land. Longing to be in the kingdom. Longing to be with the Lord and with all the promises and the blessings and the provisions. And where it says here we can look and we can say that it, the curse goes that one would be terrified in the morning. Wishing it was evening and they'd be terrified in the evening wishing it was morning. What we're talking about here is we're talking about somebody who is oppressed, who is afflicted, and who is discouraged in their walk, in their life. And that's what we have today amongst the body of Messiah, where we have people who are discouraged, people who are fretting over the job they have, people who are believers, who believe in God, believe in His provisions and His ability to bless us. However, many of us, even within the body of Messiah, are discouraged and, and we feel oppressed and we're scattered in the nations. We're not in the promised land. And one of the things that reasons why that is, is we're not keeping the commandments. We might be observing them. We might be reading them. We might be acknowledging them that they're there. But are we doing them? Are we taking our tithes and our blessings and our provisions? Are we giving them to the stranger? Are we giving them to the fatherless? Are we doing good for our neighbor? Are we ensuring that the Levites among us, the teachers, the leaders, are their needs met? That is part of the commandment. That's part of the blessing. This is what we are to do. This is how we are to worship the Lord and acknowledge that it's the Lord that has given us these blessings. One might look and say, hey, uh, um, at there at the end of chapter tw uh, 28, where it says, you're all be offered for sale, but no one will buy you. You know what the actual modern day connection to that is? Is somebody standing in the unemployment line. Where somebody is looking for the job, they're looking for something to have their needs met, because that's truly what servanthood was in the ancient times. And it's somebody who can't get a job. That's the kind of person here that we're talking about, that all the way to the oppression that someone feels and the discouragement that we feel in today. What we should do is we should get back to recognizing and acknowledging where do our blessings come from. Whose commandments are we keeping? Who, what are we doing in our lives? Are we doing the work of the Lord? Are we obeying the words of the Lord and doing those things? Or are we following after men? Are we worshiping other gods? Are we serving the God of money to try and always seek our own blessing, our own provision only for the Lord at some point in time? He can take that away in two seconds. Without any kind of judgment, natural disaster, however the Lord wants to do it, he can do it. What I would encourage us to do is to continue to stay focused on God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the provisions that he's done for you, and to retell those stories in the same way that it tells us to go when, if, with the offering and to recount what God has done for us. Remember those things in everything that we do, from every blessing and every offering that we take, that when you go and you go to give something to the Lord, to the widow, to the, to the orphan, to the offering box at your local congregation, that you remember and say, the Lord has done this for me. This provision that I have only comes from the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. And that is what I am doing for the people. And when you go in and when you pray and you're doing this, you do it with humility 
you do it with an understanding that we have sinned. We have all have fallen short of the glory of God. Be careful what you say amen to and that you always do it in humility, in kindness, doing good for those, forgiving those that have wronged you, praying and hoping that those that you have wronged would forgive you as well. Loving one another, encouraging one another. That is the only answer to these things. That is the only answer to how to not receive these curses, to not commit these sins. And that's the only way that the children of Israel and that his, God's chosen people, his special treasure that he chooses from among all nations, that he considers so valuable, that is what we have to focus on. That is what we have to do if we ever hope to enter into the kingdom, to be in the kingdom, and to receive the blessings that are prescribed to us if we are to do if we do those commandments and the work of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction again. As we are closing out the book of Deuteronomy and this Torah cycle for this year, Father, I pray that your kingdom would be coming very soon, Lord. But we know, Lord, that there's a great amount of work that needs to be done, and there's a great amount of hurt and struggle, even in the body of Messiah, Lord. And I pray that we would be encouraged and that to walk in your ways, to not only observe or acknowledge your commandments, Lord, but to walk them out and to do them. If we ever give an offering, Lord, and we consider to be our first fruits or that we give to those to make sure that the uh, stranger among us is taken care of, the widow is taken care, care of among us, Father, that we would acknowledge that we are doing that and because that is the work that you have asked us to do. Father, I pray that these curses would not fall, fall among us. I pray that we would always maintain our integrity in times of secret and in, our, in the quiet place, Father, that we would not commit the sins that would bring curses, Lord. But we would instead pray in secret to you behind the closed doors, not in a boasting way, but, Lord, in humility, asking for forgiveness for our sins and asking only for our daily provisions, only that you meet our needs and not the desires and lusts of our, our hearts and our flesh. So, Father, I pray that you continue to be with us and guide us. I pray that we would stand up and that we would continue to confirm the covenant that you made with our forefathers in all the ways, Lord, and that we would always recognize the signs and the scars and the symbols of that covenant that we have with you, knowing all of our blessings and all of our provisions come from you, and that your words and your instructions, Lord, are the very contract of that covenant that you've made with us. So let us be encouraged as we continue to read the words of your Torah and the Scripture in all the things that we do. We love you, we bless you, we thank you on this Sabbath day, and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet V'chayelam Nata Betocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 60. Our Haftor portion this week is uh, all of chapter 60. And this is the sixth of seven Haftor portions called the Consolation of Israel, the Redemption of Jerusalem. For those of you who have been part of the past broadcast, we're telling this great story of redemption. Uh, and this is a homiletic sermon uh, 
that has been around for a long time. In fact, we think it's the longest sermon, or as the oldest sermon, I should say, and it's pretty long when it lasts seven weeks, but it's the oldest sermon that we can find evidence of sermonizing that's been done with the Bible. And this is a well-known Jewish sermon, and we teach it every year as a part of going through the Torah cycle. And it's just chocked full of explanations of redemption and about and what we understand to be the work of the Messiah, including his second coming is embedded within this. Now, a lot of times when I talk to my Jewish brethren and we bring up the subject of redemption, they tend to view redemption as something that happens at a corporate level for all of Israel. And that is true. That that does happen. But what they don't quite seem to understand is that when the Messiah comes, he comes bringing a personal redemption for us as well. That what God knows us intimately and personally as well as besides the nation and all of the people of the kingdom. And one of the things that... Um, that uh, my Jewish brethren fail to understand is that Israel, when it speaks of Israel here, is not just the confined spate of where the Jews live. That Israel includes all the people of Israel. That is also the house of Israel besides the house of Judah. And it includes all the companions from all over the world that join with them to worship the God of Israel. And so Israel is not just a Jewish thing. That's the name of the kingdom, the whole big kingdom. You know, the one the Messiah is in charge of, where he's the king of all nations uh, and so forth. And these prophecies, when it speaks of the corporate uh, redemption, it's not exclusively to just Jewish people. It is speaking about the kingdom of God that will be on earth called Israel. And that's the name of the kingdom. Uh, that he'll be headquartered from Jerusalem. And so, therefore, a lot of this redemption talk is pointed at Jerusalem, is talking about Jerusalem and uh, so forth, because that's the headquarters, of, you will, of, of the whole country. If I were to just focus in on Washington, D.C., and I said, well, Washington, will D.C. will do this, and Washington, D.C. will do that, you wouldn't make the mistake of thinking, hey, it's just the people that live near Delaware or Baltimore you know, that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the whole country. Well, the same thing is when we address and talk about Jerusalem and Israel here, we're talking about the whole kingdom, not just a segment of it. And so the language here is at that level. It's talking about the whole kingdom. Now, my Christian friends, they make the same mistake my Jewish brethren do, but on the flip side. They think that the Messiah came to do personal redemption, and there is no great, greater corporate redemption for Israel. You know, they, in their estimation, Israel had a shot at the Messiah. They messed it up. They lost it. It now went to the nations, and God's done with Israel. That's absolutely wrong and absolutely false, and anybody teaching it's heretical. Uh, it is very false. Uh, the Messiah made promises to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will still fulfill those promises to their descendants. Uh, and he's still the Messiah, still with personal redemption. Praise God that the personal redemption extends to all peoples of the world, just as he promised to Abraham that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. 
um, and that's the personal redemption is the one that expands out to that. But the corporate redemption is when he absorbs all of them and brings them all in. Now, I mention those things and I, because as we're getting to this final, these final half doors of consolation, the really good stuff that it's talking about here is at a much farther expanded level. It's not just at the people who got kicked out of the land because of sin and got scattered in the nations. It's, it's when he brings them back. He also brings back all the people, all his saints, uh, from the different nations. Now, the pass- I'm going to read through this passage to you, the initial part of the passage. And I want you to understand, as we're reading through it, that my Jewish brethren, the rabbis and so forth, they see this as one of the most powerful metaphors in all of Scripture. Huge metaphor. They would be wrong about that. The words here are very literal as to what we're about to read. So I want you to keep that in mind. People tend to view this as a metaphor. I want to tell you, this is looking very literal. For us in the last days, it's becoming very obvious to us. So beginning at chapter 60 at verse 1, follow along as I read for you. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about, and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold, frankincense, and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord and the and all the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Naboth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like cloud and like the doves to the lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Now, when I said to you that this is literal, let me go ahead and let's fast forward. What do the prophets say that's supposed to be happening to the last generation and at the very end of the ages before the Messiah comes? Well, they tell us that the period of time leading up to the coming Lord, seeing the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, that there's a three-and-a-half-year period called the Great Tribulation. The book of Revelation goes into great detail, explaining all the various judgments that will fall upon the earth in that period of time leading up to the coming of the Lord. One of those judgments, in fact, a couple of those judgments, um, talks about that the earth is going to be struck by a comet, an asteroid, a heavenly body, and it will hit the earth, and that it will open the abyss of the earth. In other words, it will penetrate deeply into the earth. And it will blow debris 
and smoke up into the atmosphere that will darken the earth from the sun's light, the moon, and, and stars, because there will be all this debris in the atmosphere, and it will darken the earth. The earth will go into darkness. And it goes on to say that that darkness is going to be five months. So, And it's called the final days of indignation. So the Great Tribulation is three and a half years long. We're talking about the last five months of it, though, is the earth is in darkness. Now, for all of the judgments that have taken place earlier on the earth, this is the one that is going to be most gripping to mankind. And here's the reason why. Scientists tell us that if the earth was ever darkened in that fashion, where the sun was not seen uh, for, they say, after four months, it's what they call an Ellie. It's an extension-level event. They're saying, basically, if the sun's darkened for four months, everybody's going to die. And, oh, by the way, the Lord says that when he returns, that had he not shortened the days of coming back, that all flesh would have died. The event that is sending the signal to the entire world that we're dying is this darkness. When the darkness comes, that is, that's a death knell. That is saying everybody on the earth is going to die, uh, and for most of them prematurely. Uh, however, in the midst of that, it says that the remnant, the people that believe the Lord that are still on the earth, the tribulation saints, they will have light. The other people will be in darkness, but they will have light. Now, let me take you back to the judgments that was in Egypt uh, leading to the Egyptian exodus. There was a time, and in fact, it's the ninth judgment, that there was darkness for three days. and But there were lights in the homes of the Israelites. Egypt was in darkness, but the Israelites had light. They had luminaries in their homes. This prophecy is referring to the old one and speaking into the future that even the whole earth is covered in darkness, there will be light in the homes of those that know the Lord. And that many people will be coming to that light uh, to be there for it. And then he goes on to say, he says that when we begin to see what the Lord is doing, and namely, as this darkness ends... And Zechariah describes it as the clouds begin to roll, scroll back. And what that is, is that, that all that dirt and debris in the atmosphere begins to collect. And it takes on moisture and it freezes and, they, and, and it becomes hail. And the Bible talks about 100-pound hailstones being precipitated down. And oh, by the way, you throw enough debris up into the atmosphere where it blocks out the sun... When it eventually does come down, it will definitely come down as hailstones because the hail and the ice forms around a little particle uh, that will collect the moisture and hold the moisture, which would be smoke debris or dirt or whatever it is in the atmosphere. And the, this hail comes, you know, raining down. Um, and it describes that as like a judgment that fell upon Egypt. They had hailstones as well that were mixed with fire. And it says that as the clouds begin to scroll back to set that up for it to happen, that's when we see the sign of the Son of Man 
coming in the clouds of heaven. That's when, and, and the scripture tells us the brightness of him coming from space is seven times brighter than the sun. Now, if you go outside and you look up and look directly at the sun, you can only bear to look at it a, a, a few moments before it's harmful to, to your eyes. The brightness of him coming is seven times brighter than the sun. And we are told in the Gospel of Luke that we're to lift our heads up for our redemption is drawing near. Now, this is the way Isaiah says, Then you will see and be radiant. The light will shine on you, and you'll be extremely bright. The light will be that bright. This is in verse 5. And your heart will thrill and rejoice. And the Hebrew there, for what we translate as thrill and rejoice, it, it, it's the strongest way the Hebrew can express it. It says, literally, you will be so um, occupied with the joy of the moment that your body will like shudder. It's, it's like, it's like your, your, your body is and your mind is having the extre most extreme joy that you can have. Uh, at that moment, and it says that we'll just shudder with, with, and be thrilled, you know, with the moment. That's the picture of the sign of the Son of Man coming in heaven. That is the, that's Isaiah's picture of, of him coming back. Now, it goes on a little bit further and begins to talk about wonderful things that are going to happen to Israel, namely the kingdom, and it says all the nations will be coming. And the very best that you can possibly think of, for, and that's the way Isaiah expresses this, you, you think of all the very best things that he could think of in his day, and he said, all of that will be coming. You know, the flocks from this place, the gold from that place, the frankincense from this place. Now, it's not, you know, this is one place where it's metaphoric. It's not talking about those are the specific things that literally are brought. What it's really talking about is the abundance of the nations are brought. Every good thing is being brought uh, to the kingdom. Uh, because, you know, it's all coming to now build the kingdom and be a part of the kingdom. And then I want to show you this very interesting verse, verse 8, where there's a very fascinating question asked. Who are those who fly like a cloud and like the dove to their lattices? The answer to that question is you and me. Why? Why is it that we'll fly like clouds and suddenly ascend up like a dove would take off from the ground and land on the lattices? It's because you and I, at the coming of the Lord, we get new bodies. Uh, not this mortal body that dies. You'll receive the immortal body, the body that lives forever with the Lord. And we are told that our body that we get in that time will be a body just like the Lord's body that he used when the disciples saw him after the resurrection. And let me just remind you of a couple of things about that body that he had. He walked through a wall. He sat down at a table. He ate a piece of fish. He got up and he walked through the wall again. Now, let me tell you something. That's a feat. Furthermore, on the day he ascended, he simply lifted off the ground and went into the clouds. 
the body that we're to get in the kingdom, the replacement body for this mortal one, is able to do those same things. Now, I'm a scientific person, and I have a scientific background. I can tell you scientifically how that's possible. All you have to do is have a body that has some sort of ability to adjust the density of your molecules. If I make my molecules so less dense, they can be less than gas. They can be to the point where solid objects could go right through me and it wouldn't affect me whatsoever. Or I could get on the other side of a solid thing. I could make myself so light that I would float like a gas in the atmosphere and I'd just float up. And I, I could adjust it to where that I could hover at this place or, uh, you know, land, you know, adjust. And by the way, the scripture tells us that when the Messiah returns, when we get our new bodies, you're in default float mode that you ascend. And you ascend to the clouds and you meet the air, the, the Lord in the air. And at the resurrection, and even for those that may still be alive at the time of the resurrection, we all get these bodies at the same time, and we ascend. We ascend up into the air. Now, later on, it says that we land in a new mountain called Jerusalem. So we travel, not by ship, not by airplane, but we travel like the clouds do, and we travel over to Jerusalem and we land. And I personally, I think uh, the number of days that are involved there, it probably takes us a little bit to get oriented to our new bodies and to be able to adjust the density of the molecules so that you'll land. I think the default mode is float. You go up and float and you stay floating in the air until you can figure out how to let yourself down back down to the ground again. Now, as I said to you before, uh, the Jewish people and the rabbis, when they read this, they see it as all as metaphor. The reason why we can see the literal part is because later on, what the Messiah did and what was taught by the disciples is completely consistent with this. That this explains a lot of things about what the Lord told us about and the disciples told us about and, and the apostles told us about. This is the basis of that. This is what the Lord is doing. When he, in the final days of the tribulation, will have light, everybody else will be in darkness. Then we'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming. We will thrill. We'll be rejoiced. We'll be resurrected. Guess what? We get a new body. We float. We go to the clouds. We, we, we're we like a, a, a dove that goes up to the lattice and hangs on. We're floating in the air. We can fly. Now, as fancy as that sounds, uh, or fanciful, maybe I'll use that term, as fanciful as that sounds, it's no more fanciful than the description the Lord says the, what his kingdom is going to be like. He says his kingdom will be like nothing that's ever been seen before, that man has ever seen on the earth before. Verse 10, he goes on to say, And foreigners will build up your walls, and your kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. And your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night. Now before, if you remember in the Hoftors of Consolation, 
that it shifted and it said that he was going to console Israel and redeem Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden it shifted to a very positive thing. This is the sixth portion. Very positive. You know, that's what you understood before, but we're going to do very positive things now. You know, I'm going to have compassion on you now. And and my face will be turned toward you. You do know that right now in the days that we're living the way we have been living, it's only now that we're beginning to see the face of the Lord turn toward us. And I believe in the modern messianic movement that part of the expression is God's face is turning toward us and we're now receiving favor. And why, why do we do that? Because we say the Shema. And in the Shema, if you remember... May the Lord, when he sees you, get a smile on his face. That means he has to have turned his face toward you. You know, and may he, his countenance, in other words, the full expression of his face, and then he grants you peace. You know, that, that's all based on may the Lord look at you. That's the blessing of the Shema. May the Lord look at you and grant you favor and grant you, grant you peace. And that obviously is something that happens at the end of the exile in the, in the greater sense. And that's what we have being described for us as being the wonderful things of the kingdom. Now let me look just a little bit further into our chapter. Um, it says, verse 11, And may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. And that's talking about the judgment. If these people are not going to join with God and his kingdom, they ain't going to be around. They got judged the day of the Lord. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. The juniper, the box tree, the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. He's listing off things that, that in Lebanon they were known for their incredible different woods. The cedars of Lebanon. You know, is a, is a, in fact, the symbol for Lebanon is a big cedar tree. That's what they're known for. That's their greatest glory, greatest natural thing. And he said, even the natural things from all the nations, they'll be brought to you. They'll be a part of it. Verse 14, and the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, not only is he speaking of Jerusalem, but he's talking about the people. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, if you remember the word Zion, what it really means, it's a technical term having to do with a branch that has been grafted in. We are all grafted in branches. You know, we, none of us are natural branches anymore. We, even the natural branches have been grafted in. Everybody's been broken away from the Lord. We all have to be grafted back in. Jeremiah teaches that. Paul teaches that. And so we're called the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We are the grafted in ones that have been brought back. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations. You will suck the breasts of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. One of the things that I think is essential in understanding all of God's plans 
and truly interpreting um, at a personal level and as as we step back and survey level of what is the plan of God, what is God really doing? Uh, the best example goes back to um, Egypt. Was the grand purpose of God in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt was to redeem them and get them out of slavery? No, it wasn't. That was a byproduct. That was something that happened to their benefit. What was the overarching principle? What was the overarching purpose that God was doing in that? He wanted Pharaoh, all of Egypt, the children of Israel, and all the witnesses of the world to know that he was the Lord. There is no other God. He's the one and only God. That was the real purpose of why we ended up getting stuck in Egypt, being enslaved, and the Lord came and delivered us out. To show to the world, to give a testimony to the world that he was the Lord and he was the one and only Lord. Now, stop and think about me with this for a moment. This most excellent book we've got here. The first five books, the Torah, that we go through. Um, let me summarize the whole Torah teaching to you. It's really the story of a group of people who were saved out of Egypt and they were on a journey to the promised land. That's really what it is. The story is. The first book is just simply explaining where did these people come from and how did they get stuck in Egypt to begin with. But the rest of the book, all the other the four remaining books, is all about what happened to these people as they came out of that and they were on the journey to the promised land. It's a micro-teaching of all of us of all generations. All of us in all generations are in trials and tribulations. We are subject to sin. And we're in bondage and slavery to sin. And God has given us a promise. I will deliver you out of trials and tribulations. I will deliver you out, and I will take you to the promised land. And the promised land we're really talking about is the Messianic kingdom. And it was just a teaching example <laughs> to explain what God was going to be doing with everybody. Now, if the original purpose of that whole Egyptian thing was not about the salvation of those people, but it was really about getting the world to know who the Lord is. What do you think the real purpose of the day of the Lord, the great tribulation and all that is? What do you think that purpose is? It's the same one. And for us as tribulation saints, let me just say this to you. You have no more promise about being saved out of the great tribulation than the children of Israel had about being saved out of Egypt. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of God achieving even greater goals. And if we're going to get on board supporting what are the real goals of God, even though the example of those that came out of Egypt, and we apply the example for us as the last generation in the last days, then we need to stop making the mistakes that our ancestors made coming out of Egypt. We should get above this thing, see it for what it is, and get on board with what is God's plan. And God's plan is to make his name known throughout all of the earth. And that the byproduct of doing that is 
we get to be part of his family, get to be part of his remnant, and we receive the benefits of redemption and being saved. We get that as a, as a byproduct of being part of his house and being a part of what he is doing. And that is every bit as true about when we go through the Great Tribulation as it was for our ancestors when they were coming out of Egypt and, and making their journey to the Promised Land. And as you all know, the parallels between the judgments that fell on Egypt, they're all paralleled in the book of Revelation in the judgments that will fall on the world in the last three and a half years. There's a direct link between every judgment to the things happening. And I believe that God, this is in fulfillment of God says, I'm not like a man. I don't make impulsive decisions. I don't come up with new plans for things. He says, I have planned it beforehand, and I will do it. And if we want to understand the plan of God, one of the first things you have to do, if you're going to understand uh, Bible eschatology, the study of last things, the first thing you have to do is study the beginning. Because the Lord has said to us, by the prophet Isaiah, as a matter of fact, that um, I was telling you the end while I was telling you the beginning. I was telling you what was going to happen at the end when I told you all about the creation story. You know, the six days of labor, seventh day was the Sabbath and rested. Well, there's 6,000 years of the history of this world, and on the last day, a 1,000 years, it's the Messianic kingdom. It's like the Sabbath of millennia. You want to understand what the Sabbath or the millennium is about? You want to understand the Messianic kingdom? Go back to Genesis 1 and study the history of the creation of the earth because he said, hey, I was telling you the end while I was telling you the beginning. And the people that can see that pattern and can go through the rest of the Torah, and in particular to see the great story of the Torah, of the exodus from Egypt and all the things they had to go through, you're seeing the grand story, the whole layout of what God has been doing throughout all of the generations, and in particular, what he will complete with the last generation. If you really want to know eschatology, the end things, you've got to go spend some time in the Torah and learn all that history. Because that's what he's planning on doing. And so when I mention to you the judgments in Revelation, parallel the judgments that were upon Egypt, <clears throat> it's true. It's true. Back then, it was it was 10 judgments. Up here is 21 judgments. Back then, it came in sets of threes. Up here, it's going to come in sets of sevens. It's, it's there, the whole story. And here's Isaiah describing to us the end events. Uh, and he's, he's part of this argument of that but trust the Lord, because in the end, God will console Israel will redeem Jerusalem from all of the other elements of the world. And it will become a praise. It will become something that is wonderful uh, for us. Um, verse 15. Whereas you had been forsaken and hated, no one passing through, I'll make you an everlasting pride. For a joy from generation to generation. Let me go down a little bit further. Verse 18. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Uh, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness from the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. That's God dwelling with mankind. 
that's what it will be like when God doesn't sit on his throne at the way off beyond the edge of the universe, but he's here, and he dwells with us here. I keep reminding people that when you, when the next event for us, you know, after we die, we're not going to heaven. The Messiah's coming here. And we will be raised to live here, not on some cloud with some baby angels shooting arrows. You know, we're going to be here. And this is where his kingdom will be. Now, I want to show you this last couple of verses here. Verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Who being glorified? For what purpose are we really doing this? So that he, the Lord, is glorified. Which basically means that we acknowledge he really is the Lord. We recognize him for who he really is. And then this verse, verse 22. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, I have to tell you a little bit of a personal story with regard to that. Many years ago, uh, when I was starting my public ministry, one of the things that I prayed and I talked to the Lord about, because we talked about the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist and the judgments that will be coming, but, you know, I talked about the Lord's salvation and deliverance from this, but when I would go out, most of the people focused in on the, the ominous-sounding things, the doom and gloom stuff. They, they, and I, I recognized that they had a tendency to do that, and I was praying to the Lord, and I said, Lord, can you give me uh, just something real simple that could be an encouragement to your people because, you know, going out and telling this this end of the ages message and all the things that's going to happen the day of the Lord and all this, this is, this is an ominous message. Not all the believers receive that as a really good thing. Matter of fact, most of them are scared half to, out of their wits about it. And I've seen lots of people who have heard me teach and picked up and walked away and didn't want to hear another word from me. They were so scared. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to scare anybody at all. I was truly trying to tell them, that, that orient them to what's coming and what the wonderful things the Lord was going to do. Well, I'm asking the Lord. I said, Lord, how do, how do I do this? How do I find a way to be truly encouraging to those that are afraid? And I remembered that the thing that the children of Israel were most afraid of was what would happen to their children. And all I can tell you is, I guess it's the closest thing that I've ever had to a vision from the Lord. I, I, I was awake. I was very aware of the fact that I was awake. But I was having this thought. I could kind of see my thoughts on this. And I found myself standing at a podium teaching and it was a darkened room there was only light that came down on me and only a little bit of light like on the first row and on the first row there was a young woman holding a baby and she was weeping quietly and it began to bother me and so i stopped speaking i stepped down from the podium i went beside her and I said to her, I said, woman, why are you weeping? This actually was, I guess, the vision that took place. I said, woman, why are you weeping? 
And she looked up and she responded, for the fear of my child's life. And I said to her, my voice spoke to her and I said, woman, do you not understand that you were holding a nation in the messianic kingdom? That this one child will bear children, who will bear children, who will increase in the kingdom and become, that kid will become a nation in the messianic kingdom. You don't, you don't realize what you're holding? You know, the Lord will surely protect your child. He's protecting a whole world of people. Now, I, I ended that vision thing. I was very encouraged by that. I said, Lord, that was wonderful. That's tremendous, you know, to give that message uh, to people. And as I was thinking about it, and then it was the next day, the Lord took me to this passage of Scripture. Verse 22, that's exactly what that's saying. Look at it again. The smallest one will become a clan. You know what a clan is? That's a thousand strong. That's a thousand people is called a clan. And the least one, like a baby, will become a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, the millennial kingdom is a thousand years. Is it possible that God could take a newborn child on day one of the messianic kingdom and raise that child up, mature them, make them an adult, have children, and at the end of the thousand years there's a mighty nation on the earth started from that small child? And the answer is yes. The answer is very much yes. That is possible. And that's what the Lord is promising to do. Now consider all of the children that will be going to the kingdom. You and me, I don't know if we'll be bearing children. Maybe we will. Uh, but I do know there's a lot of children that will come into the kingdom, and they will truly prosper. And now do you understand when the disciples tried to stop some children coming up to uh, Yeshua? And he said, no, 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 you suffer. You go out of your way to make sure that children come to me, he said, because such is the kingdom. The number of children in the kingdom is off the scales. When it talks about that you and I will reign in his kingdom, we're not going to be reigning over other nations and unbelievers. We'll be taking care of all of the children of the kingdom. That's who we'll have rule and authority over, is to train up children, you know, in the kingdom. And there'll be, as the, as the scripture says, there'll be no end to the increase. It will truly enlarge. That's the description of the kingdom. The children will be the way more mightier group than us uh, in the kingdom. Amen? Very encouraging word from Isaiah speaking to our future and we in the last generation this is of particular interest to us now the consolation uh, consolation of israel the redemption of jerusalem amen father thank you thank you again for this sabbath and for the encouraging word from the prophet isaiah help us lord have a vision of your great plan to understand the purpose 
of your plan and that will be in support of that plan. We thank you in Yeshua's name, our coming King. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Before the King of Kings Whoa.